Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to church. My name is Gary Anderson. Uh, I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. It is a joy to be with you this morning. So glad that you could be with us here at church. If you are new or visiting this morning, I just want to extend a really special welcome to you. Uh, I know firsthand, and I've heard it many times secondhand, uh, how unfun, I don't think that's actually a real word, um, how not fun it can be to be a visitor in a church or shopping for a church. And uh, my great hope and prayer is that you will find this to be a really welcoming, really loving place where you will encounter the living God. If you are new or visiting, I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be hanging out down here in the front. Um, kind of feels like a receiving line, but it's not. Uh, and if you're brave enough to come down and introduce yourself, would love to meet you uh, if you're new or visiting with us. Um, we are continuing our winter and spring series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the title of this series is Something Greater, because that is the note that Matthew just plays over and over and over again uh, as he gives us this biography of Jesus' life, that something greater is here. We're in Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter, and Julie Hunt, I believe, is going to come read that for us. So welcome, Julie, like you mean it. <laughs> Uh, Matthew, chapter one, or Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, the whole chapter. Thanks, Julie. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Sorry. For it is written... Sorry. Uh, I lost my place. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear, up, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, when, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. That, that's Simon. good, actually. You can stop at 17. Oh, 
Really? Yeah. Oh, it was getting really good. <laughs> it was really amazing what we were about to hear. We'll just hold on that. We'll hold it for next week. Sorry. That's, um, that's totally on me. I apologize, Julie. I said the whole chapter, but it's not the whole chapter. It's verses 1 through 17. I'm sorry that I miscommunicated to all of you. I repent. Forgive me. We're just doing verses 1 through 17. I, I, I know. It's, it's amazing. They're just going to have to come back next week. And actually, I think what you read was amazing already. It's, it's going to be really fun, I think. Um, well, here we go. When I was, uh, the summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, uh, I took a summer job. Uh, Through most of, not actually most of, all of middle school, all of high school, I went to and then worked at a summer camp in Maine, a Christian camp for boys through my high school years. The summer after I graduated from high school, before I went to college, uh, I was like, that summer camp deal was awesome, wasn't really doing it for the money. And uh, I was like, I need to make some coin before I head off to college, you know, because I got to have some money when I go to college. And so that summer between my senior year and my freshman year of college, uh, I got a, fr- a job with uh, my friend's dad's company. And, and let me just pause here. For all of you who are like, all this dude ever does is tell stories about high school, I'm sorry. It's, they were the glory years, right? And so how, I just, how else am I going to relive the glory years except here in front of you all? No, it's just God gave me a lot of stories from then that are good illustrations for sermons. So uh, one of my good friends in high school, his dad was the owner president and CEO of one of the larger uh, construction companies in Northeast Ohio. And so I went to work for him that summer between my freshman year or between my senior year and my freshman year of college. Uh, I was about as low on the totem pole as you could possibly get at that company. Actually, I was, I was serving the guy who was the lowest person on the totem pole at that company. And so I spent that summer working in the warehouse. Uh, and I did some really amazing things that summer. Like, I painted all of the toolboxes in fresh coats of paint. Uh, I organized every shelf and pallet in that whole warehouse. I learned to drive a forklift, which I probably wasn't supposed to, but that was one of the highlights of that summer. Uh, and I cleaned like I had never cleaned before. I, no joke, in three months, I bet I swept the floor of the warehouse a thousand times. Uh, I wasn't working there alone, though. Uh, my buddy, whose dad owned the company, he wasn't there. He was out on one of the job sites as an uh, apprentice that summer. Uh, but his younger brother, who was a couple years behind us, he was working with me uh, in the warehouse that summer and doing all the same things that I did. And uh, I remember the first week of, of summer that we were there doing that job, uh, a few of the site managers came in in the middle of the day to have a meeting in the offices, which were connected to the warehouse, and as they came through the warehouse, when they saw my friend's brother there, the owner, president, CEO's son, Nick, uh, working in the warehouse, it was like this kind of shock came up across their face. Like they knew who this guy was, they knew his dad was the, the big shot at the company, and they were just like, Nick, what are you doing here? They were like, did you get in trouble? Did you do something wrong? They were like, you are not supposed to be here. And then they went in and had their meeting, and, and Nick was kind of embarrassed and whatever, whatever. Uh, they, like, as, as there always is in some, like, good-natured teasing or some not-good-natured teasing or sarcasm, there's a little bit of truth always underlying 
teasing and sarcasm. And though they were just kind of messing with him a little bit, there was a little bit of truth underlying what they were saying. They were saying, you're not supposed to be here. Like, you're going you're gonna to take over this company one day. And that was kind of the point, right? Dad wanted his sons to experience all levels of the company. At some point, they were going to have prominent roles at that company. And they were sitting there looking like, one day we're going to report to you. One day you're going to be our boss. And this job is below any, any one of us. And we're a little bit shocked that you have to spend your summer cleaning the toilets and sweeping the floors in the warehouse. There was this underlying sense of, because of who your dad is, you shouldn't have to be here. And I wonder if any of us have ever felt that. Not that we had to work in the warehouse of our dad's company in the summer when we were in high school, but I wonder if any of us have ever been in a season of life where we have felt like, I shouldn't have to be here. I don't want to be here. This is not what I want to be doing. This is not what I want to be feeling. This is not how I want my life to be going. Have you ever felt like I shouldn't be here? Particularly, for those of you who were with us last week, if we think about what we talked about last week, I think it was last week, feels like a long time ago now, when we said, like unquestionably, every one of us, God says to us what he says to his son, Jesus Christ, that you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I take great delight. And if that is true, then are there not seasons of life where we are thinking, I shouldn't have to be here. If I am the beloved son of God, if I am the beloved daughter of God, why does my life look the way that it does? The truth is, we are all going to go through seasons of life that are hard. We are all going to go through seasons of life that are difficult. We are all going to go through seasons of life where we are going to suffer. Uh, Some of you have been there already. Some of you are there right now. And if you're not there, and if you've never been there, my, my super encouraging word to you this morning, just keep living. Because it's going to come at some point. Uh, relationships have an unbelievable capacity for suffering, for hurting us, for us hurting others. Uh, everyone's, if, you're, if you happen to be married, if you happen to get married someday, everyone's marriage is going to be hard at some point. A- every one of us. Uh, parenting, Should you have children, that only offers about 100 million opportunities for for pain, difficulty, disappointment, and suffering. If anyone in here has a job, work only offers about 1,000 million opportunities for pain, frustration, disappointment, and suffering. We are all going to go through some stuff, and some of us are going through some stuff right now, and it is really easy in the midst of the stuff that this life brings to us, especially for those of us who call ourselves sons and daughters of Christ, for whom God has called us sons and daughters of God, it is really easy for us to start to wonder, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to go through this? If I am the beloved child of God, why does my life look the way that it does? Which is why I'm actually really excited to to preach the first 17 verses of chapter four that we are going to look at today. Because in a... uh, significantly more meaningful way. I can't help but wonder if Jesus was asking himself in Matthew chapter four, the same question that my buddy's brother was asking 24 years ago in the warehouse in Solon, Ohio. Why do I have to be here? If I am the beloved child of God, why am I going through this right now? 
We are in uh, our winter and spring series called Something Greater, which is we are teaching through the book of Matthew, uh, which has been up to this point, for me at least, and hopefully for you, I don't want to be presumptuous, uh, a total joy. Um, The sermon that I'm preaching today, I have titled this, Who is Your Daddy? Come on. And even though it's a little bit funny and has some like cultural context related to it, I'm calling this Who is Your Daddy? Because I think that is the heartbeat of the question that is raised in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. As we heard Julie read, twice when the devil comes to Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God. And I think traditionally we read that as like, if you're the, prove that you're the son of God by doing some miracle or doing something right now. But that's a two-sided coin. Because I think the other side of that coin, when the devil comes to Jesus in his suffering in the wilderness and says, if you are the son of God, he is questioning Jesus' identity. Because he is saying to Jesus in that moment, if, God, if you are God's beloved son in whom he is well-pleased, why do things look the way they do for you right now? The heartbeat of what the devil is is coming to Jesus and saying is, he's questioning, is God really your father? Because if he was, I'm not sure your life would look the way that it looks right now. And that has got to speak to some of us this morning based on what we are going through, what we have been through, or what we will go through at some time. So here's what I want us to get out of this passage. Three things uh, that I want us to learn from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And the first one is this, the wilderness is part of the call. The wilderness is part of the call. Not a lot of amens there, which I wasn't, wasn't, wasn't necessarily expecting it. So uh, as we come to this text, what we have to remember is that the words of scripture are inspired by God. The chapter and verse delineations are not. And so sometimes we get chapter breaks that some scribe in the Middle Ages or wherever put into the scriptures that actually makes it a little bit harder for us to understand the context of what is happening. And I think we have one of those as we transition from Matthew chapter 3 to Matthew chapter 4. We have to understand what has happened at the end of Matthew chapter 3 for us to appreciate what is happening in Matthew chapter 4. And for those who are with us, those of you who were here last week, or if you weren't, we'll just go back to it right now. This is what happens at the end of Matthew chapter three. Jesus comes to John the Baptist in the wilderness, says, I need to be baptized by you. John says, I don't think I should do that. Jesus says, you're going to do it. John says, all right, you're the boss. He baptizes Jesus. He brings Jesus up out of the water. After Jesus comes up out of the water, verse 16 of chapter three, it says, behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is like This is it. This is the big reveal. Remember uh, that show where they did the houses, where they would fix people's houses for a week, and then they would park a truck in front of it at the end, and everyone would gather around, and you didn't realize at the time it was a bunch of shoddy workmanship that was going to fall apart in a few, (laughs) few months, but they would pull that truck away, and they would reveal what had been done to that house. This is the big reveal of Jesus' life. God the Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, he is the man. For my Gen Z friends, he says, he's him. Y'all are too old. Come, y'all are, all you millennials are too cool for Gen Z jokes, okay? Come on. And what we would expect to happen next is what? Some huge coronation. 
some huge march into the city of Jerusalem where Jesus takes his place on the throne and and reestablishes his reign in the kingdom of earth. And what happens next? Verse one of chapter four, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the very next thing that happens is God's spirit himself, God himself takes his son Jesus into the wilderness. And look, the wilderness is not a nice place in this context, okay? This is not a five-star resort outside of Scottsdale where he's gonna have some you know, self-care time. 40 days and 40 nights of no food, no tent, no sleeping bag, just the wild animals and the only companion, the devil himself for the 40 days that he is in the wilderness. And it's like, what, like how do we make sense of that? How, how does that comport in, in, in our economy of what it, what it means to be the beloved son of someone? That God says, this is my beloved child. And the very next thing he does is he sends him to the wilderness. In Mark's gospel, the Greek word that he says, uh, that, that the, he says the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Greek word is the word that we get our word ball from. He literally says he was thrown or hurled into the wilderness immediately after God says, this is my beloved son. And so here's what we got to take away from it. The wilderness is part of the call. It is not an aberration. It is not a mistake. It is, it is not that God has re, uh, taken away his love. It's not that Jesus has made a mistake. It's not that he did something that he needs to be punished for. It's not that he has been selfish and prideful and God needs to send him to the wilderness to deal with that. It is simply part of the way that God works. When he calls people to himself, he also has them go into the wilderness. The wilderness is part of the call. And we see that all over scripture. It's not just for Jesus. So if we go back to Genesis and we go to the story of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, God shows up to Abraham, an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, Abraham, I want to have a special relationship with you. You need to leave this place and go to the place that I will show you. And for Abraham to go from Ur to Canaan, which was the promised land, you know what he had to go through in between there? The wilderness. And when we get to Moses in the book of Exodus, and Moses is, is an Israelite child who's saved by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house, and one day when he is fully grown, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian uh, mistreating an Israelite, and in that moment, Moses decides, I am actually going to identify with my ethnic people, the Israelites, and not my adopted people, the Egyptians, and he kills the Egyptian. That's, we're not saying that's what should have happened, okay? That's not like, and that was a good thing that he did. But after he kills that Egyptian, what does he do? He flees Egypt to where? to Midian, the wilderness, where he spends 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. When God comes to David, little shepherd boy David, and he tells Samuel, anoint David as the next king. He is the one I have chosen to be king over my people. Uh, Did David go straight from the anointing to the throne room in Jerusalem? No. Most scholars say he spent 10 or 15 years running from Saul, the current king who wanted to take his life. And where did he hide from Saul? In the wilderness. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery, when he delivered them from Pharaoh, where did he take them? 40 years in where? The wilderness. And then we get to Jesus, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He brings me great delight. And then what happens? He goes to the wilderness because the wilderness is simply part of the call when God calls a man or a woman to himself. And so we need to recalibrate. 
Because here's what I think it's easy for us to do. It's easy for us, especially for those of us who've been in church for a while, to come up in here on a Sunday morning and hear a sermon like this and think, oh yeah, Abraham, Moses, David, Israelites, Jesus, yep, wilderness is part of the call. I get it, good theology, and I see where that's true in scripture. And then we leave here and something hits the fan on Monday morning and we all of a sudden find ourselves in the wilderness and we're not like, well, this is just the way that God works and I can understand this. We're like, what kind of God would make this happen to me? What kind of God would put me in this kind of situation? And I just, I've come along this morning to encourage you. We need to recalibrate our understanding and our expectations of what it means to be the beloved sons and daughters of God. Because the wilderness is not a mistake. It is not an aberration. The wilderness is not evidence of um, divine abandonment. God has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. The wilderness is not even evidence that God is punishing you. It is simply part of the call to become a son or daughter of God. Anybody want to clap right there? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to manipulate you like that. Like, that's not a super encouraging thought, right? Who signs up for something like that? I mean, the truth is, whether you're gods or not, you're going to spend some time in the wilderness, just, and this is not the point of, of what I'm trying to say here, but better to do it with God than without God, okay? So first thing is this. The wilderness is part of the call. Here's the second thing I want us to see. There's a purpose in the wilderness. There is a purpose in the wilderness. It is not meaningless. God is doing something in the wilderness. And that's exactly what we see in the story of Jesus' experience in the wilderness. So verse two, after fasting 40 days, I love how scripture is funny sometimes. Don't don't you love this too? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, Captain Obvious. Thank you, Matthew. Like you you think, uh, but that matters. Like it's not, there um, there aren't filler words in scripture, right? There aren't filler phrases. There aren't just, hey, I gotta hit my word count for this chapter and so I'm gonna add a little bit of extra. Like the words matter and he's communicating something to us there. What is he communicating? Jesus is suffering. You know what it's like to be, have you, have you ever been 40 days hungry? I would almost bet nobody in this room has been 40. I've never been 40 days hungry. I go one day hungry and I'm losing my mind. What Matthew is communicating is that this was really hard for Jesus. And then uh, we know, uh, for those of us who've been around church for a little while, we know how the kind of the trajectory of this, this interchange goes. The devil comes to Jesus, the adversary, the accuser comes to Jesus in the wilderness. And uh, traditionally, we've called it the temptation of Jesus. That's what it's titled here in the ESV. And twice he says to him, in his first two temptations, he says, if you are the son of God. And what he is saying to Jesus in that moment is, who's your daddy? Because if your daddy was God the father, it's hard for me to imagine that he would allow his beloved son to be experiencing what you are experiencing. And here's the thing, all of Uh, I was going to say all of Jesus' temptations. All of the devil's temptations of Jesus are actually centered on that theme. He is saying to him, "Um, your dad wouldn't let you be this hungry, would he? Like if he really loved you, he wouldn't let you be this hungry. So turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. And then he's like, takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. And he says, because your dad wouldn't let you get hurt, would he? Like, he's not going to let you hurt yourself. So, like, throw yourself down, and, and he'll, he'll show up, and he'll make sure that you, doesn't get, that you, that you don't get hurt. And then uh, the last one, he takes him up on a mountain and shows him the kingdom of the world, and he says, if you will just bow down to me, I'll give you all of this, because your daddy's not giving you what you want. 
Your daddy's not giving you what you think you need, but I'll, I'll do it. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the things that you think that you want or the things that you need. And, and, and more than kind of what we could parse out all of those temptations are actually getting at, here's what I want us to see. Jesus responds every time with what? With scripture. What a huge point to be made, like when you are being tempted, tested, when, when lies are being told to you, the power of refuting that with scripture. That's not the point I want to make here. All three times that Jesus responds to Satan, he responds with passages from the Old Testament And all of those three passages come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. That is not an accident. That is, that when we get in the New Testament, when Jesus uses words from the Old Testament, when New Testament authors use words from the Old Testament, they are saying something about the context that that Old Testament passage came from. And the context for Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 is this. The Israelites are at their, the end of their 40 years in the wilderness. They are right on the edge of the promised land. They are about to go into the promised land. And God, through Moses, is speaking to his children who have just spent 40 years in the wilderness. And this is what he is saying to them in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. He is saying, it is about to get really good. And it has been really hard for a really long time. But when it gets really good, do not forget what you saw and heard and experienced when you were in the wilderness. And I don't just want to describe it to you. I want to read it for you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's going to be up on the screen. And these are verses uh, 2 through 5 of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8. It says, this is God speaking to the Israelites through Moses. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What is God saying to his people? There was a purpose in what I had you go through. And I love that in verse two. I was with you the whole way. Your sandals didn't wear out. Your clothes didn't wear out. I provided you food the whole way. And look at what he says in verse five. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What is God saying to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter eight? It is because you are my children that I had you go through the wilderness. And so what is Jesus saying to the devil in Matthew chapter four when he quotes from Deuteronomy six through eight over and over and over again? He is saying, God is my daddy. And this is not proof that he has abandoned me. This is proof that I am his son. The wilderness season was not evidence of God's abandonment. It was evidence of God's fatherhood. The wilderness season for Jesus was the confirmation that he was the beloved son of God. Because it is in the wilderness that God shows up to his children, that God leads his children, that God provides for his children, that God tests his children, that God trains his children in a way that he could do in no other season of life. It is precisely because Jesus was God's son that God sent him to the wilderness. There is a purpose in the wilderness. 
when one of my children was about four or five, I'm not going to tell you who it was to protect their identity. When one of my children was about four or five, I walked into their room uh, and they were playing with toys on the floor. And they looked up at me from the toys they were playing with on the floor. And they said, can I have a lollipop? And it was like 930 in the morning. And I just said, no. And they go, I don't love you. That escalated quickly. <laughs> if you know my kids well, you might be able to guess which one it was. No, I'm totally, to- totally kidding. Um, here's the deal. Why did I tell them they couldn't have a lollipop at 9.30 in the morning? Because it wouldn't be good for them. Any dad who gives their child everything they ask for will destroy them. Any parent who gives their child everything they think they want will actually ruin their child. My denial of my child was not to punish them. It was not to, um, to show them that I didn't love them or make them question what their relationship was to me. My ch- denial of my child's request was precisely because I love them. Because my job as their parent is to help them become the best they can possibly be. And the way that they do that is by not getting everything they want and by sometimes having to do hard things, and by sometimes having to sit in uncomfortable situations. And that's not easy as a dad for me to send my kids into, but I know it is what is best for them. And my denial of my children, not denying that they're mine, but denying of their every request, is actually the evidence that I love them. It is the proof of my love. And if I can just, if I can just get up in our business a little bit this morning, A lot of us treat God the way that my child treated me that morning on the floor. We're like, God, can I have a lollipop? And he says no. And we're like, I don't love you. Because I think I know what's best for me. And I think I know what I want. And I am hurting. And I think I know what will make me feel better. And I want you, sovereign God, king of all, owner of all creation, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can do anything in your power. I want you to do this for me. And when the answer comes back, we're like, I'm not sure you're really who you say you are. Because what kind of God would send their child to the wilderness like this? What kind of God would let their child suffer in the way that you are allowing me to suffer? And you know what happens in those moments? The devil comes to us and he says the same thing that he said to Jesus, who's your daddy? He starts whispering in our ears, hey, 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 if if you're really the beloved son of God, if you're really the beloved daughter of God, would he really let you go through what you're going through right now? What What kind of dad lets their kid go through something like you're going through right now? And here's the answer from scripture, the loving God of the universe. Thanks, Dave. And that is not to say that God God ordains evil to come into our lives. I think sometimes he just allows it. But that is to say, because it is the clear teaching of scripture, that God sends his children to the wilderness and there is a purpose in it. And here's what a lot of people in this sanctuary could testify to right now in this moment. Some of the sweetest moments of communion with God that you have ever had have been in the wilderness. Some of the moments of the, the greatest peace you have known have been when, when, when there's a tornado raging around you because God has met you in that place that he cannot meet you when things are happy, healthy, and affluent. May we learn to thank God 
for the wilderness because he meets us there in a way that he does not meet us anywhere else. He teaches us there in a way he does not teach us anywhere else. He trains us there in a way he does not train us anywhere else. And he is preparing us for something in the wilderness that we cannot see in that moment. I think there's some of us who are like, why does God keep sending me to the wilderness? And I'm like, I think it's because God is like, it's the only time I ever hear from you. There is a purpose. There is a meaning to your suffering. There is a meaning to your frustration. There is a reason. We may not see it in the moment. We may not see it this side of eternity. But the promise of this book is that God is doing something. Even when you can't see it, he's doing something. Even when you can't feel it, he's doing something. There is a purpose in the wilderness. Okay. Um, The wilderness is part of the call. God is doing something in the wilderness. And then let's just get really hopeful to wrap this, this bad boy up. The wilderness ends. Point number three, the wilderness ends. It doesn't last forever. Like, here's Jesus, 40 days of, of not eating. My guess is it got pretty dark at some point. Here's the, the, like, his only friend in the wilderness, the devil himself. Like, talk about a dark, dark night of the soul. My guess is it got really dark for Jesus. And then goes through the temptations, refutes them with scripture, and then we come to verse 11. Again, feels kind of like not that big of a deal of verse. Might be the most important verse in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this is not some like, we don't need some, you don't need a seminary degree to draw out this point. The wilderness season ended. The devil went away, and God's angels came and ministered to Jesus. It did not last forever. There was a final point to it. And what happened when the wilderness season ended? Jesus stepped out into the calling that God had for him. We don't have time to go through uh, verses 12 to 16, but verse 17. From that time, from the time that God had sent his beloved son to the wilderness, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and he's like, it's go time. Here we go. God has done his work in me. He has prepared me. And now it's time for me to step into what he has for me. He was preparing me for something in the wilderness that now it is time to step into because the wilderness season does not last. It ends at some point. I think it would be hard for most of us to appreciate how important the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem were and and frankly still are for ethnic Jewish people. It is the the center of their uh, religious and cultural life. And uh, for the Jewish people, they have seen that center of their ethnic and religious and cultural life destroyed multiple times, right? So 597 BC, the Babylonians come in and they overtake the kingdom of Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They are deported away from there. It's where we get Psalms uh, saying like, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because all they wanted to do was go back to this place that God had promised their forefathers and was the the sign of God's blessing and presence with them, and they had been removed. And in God's graciousness, he allows them to go back. They rebuild the temple. It's called the second temple. That's the temple that Jesus saw. And then in AD 70, the Romans come in, and they destroy Jerusalem again, and they destroy the temple again. And what started in BC 597, the Jewish diaspora across the world, really gets going in earnest after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70. And now Jewish people spread out all over the world. Sometime in the 1400s, 
uh, they added a line to the liturgy they use when they celebrate the Passover. So Jewish people celebrate what's called a Seder feast to memorialize what happened the night of the Passover when God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And sometime in the 1400s, they added the very last line to the liturgy of that celebration. And the last thing they say at the end of the Passover celebration every year is this, next year in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, theological and political stuff wrapped up in that that we're not gonna get into today. Here's what I love about that. For 600 years, they have finished their annual celebration of God's deliverance of their people by saying, he will do it again one day. It may not be next year, literally, that we are in Jerusalem, but one day we will be back in Jerusalem. And so every year we will remind ourselves next year in Jerusalem. They are saying to themselves, the wilderness will not last forever. And there are some of us in this room this morning who we need to go home from church this morning and we need to find a quiet place in our house this afternoon and we need to have a good cry in front of God and we need to lay out all of our disappointments and our frustrations and our sadnesses and our questions and when it is time for us to be done, we need to say to God and to ourselves next year in Jerusalem because this will not last forever. And some of us may not be in that season, but we may know somebody who is. And we may need to call that person or sit with that person that afternoon. And we need to say, I see that you are suffering, but you need to be reminded that next year in Jerusalem. Because this will not last forever. God sends his children to the wilderness, but he does not keep them there forever. And listen, for some of us, that wilderness journey might feel like our whole existence this side of eternity. And for those of us that are called to that, that is a hard thing. Some of us are gonna move in and out of the wilderness as we go through this life. Some of us are gonna feel like we're in the wilderness the whole way. But even if that is, your, even if that is what God has called you to, the, the truth still remains. That will not last forever. I have staked my life on the promise that one day Jesus will return and make all things new and there will be no more wilderness. And until that day, may we lean into the belief that one day everything will be made new. I don't know, I don't know what it is that you're in this morning. I don't know what it is that God has you walking through this morning. But take hope, be encouraged, because it will not last forever. Uh, what I love about how Matthew presents um, this experience of Jesus in the wilderness is that uh, it is not the last time that Jesus would find himself in circumstances that seemed to be below the beloved Son of God. It is not the last time that Jesus would go to the wilderness. It is not the last time that Jesus would be uh, brought up to a high point and someone would come along and say to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Because as Jesus hung dying on the cross, Matthew tells us 23 chapters later, some of the people watching him die up on that cross said to him, if you are the son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. What were they saying to him? Jesus, who's your daddy? Because it doesn't look like you are the beloved son of God in this moment as you lay, not lay, as you hang, dying on a cross. And how did Jesus respond? Fireballs from his eyes to consume them? <laughs> no. He said, Father, Daddy, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. What was he saying? I'm yours. I trust you. Let it be to me according to your word, even when I don't like it. As Job chapter 23 says, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Jesus had been to the wilderness before and God had prepared him for what to come, what, what was to come. And when he had tried him, he came forth as gold. And if he could do it for Jesus, he can do it for you and me. Do not let your circumstances cause you to question who your daddy is. You are the beloved son of God. You are the beloved daughter of God. And sometimes God sends his children to the wilderness because he does things in the wilderness he cannot do anywhere else. But it will not last forever. Next year in Jerusalem. Just pray. God, one of the great... Um, one of, the, one of the most confusing and disorienting um, experiences of our lives is to look at uh, what you have us go through, what you call us to go through, what you allow us to go through, and at the same time reconcile that with who you are and who we believe you to be. It is a mystery at some level. But God, may we take hope and encouragement that uh, you had your only beloved son, Jesus, go to the wilderness on our behalf so that we might have your spirit with us no matter where we go, no matter where you send us, no matter what comes into our lives. And may, God, each one of us this morning feel the power of your presence in our lives and know that you do not send us alone and that you are doing something in us even when we don't feel it. Thank you for the hope we find in you. God, I pray for someone who is suffering this morning, someone who is in the wilderness this morning. I pray that they would find encouragement even now. And I pray, God, that we would, um, we would be transformed now as we worship you for the truth about who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.